This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Oh, if you don't like that, you don't like NBA basketball. The 73rd episode of Play by Playcast features the longtime voice, 30 years strong. Grant Napier has been the voice on television for the Sacramento Kings, the only game in town in Sacramento. No other major professional sports franchises in Sacramento. When you're in the capital of California, it is the Kings, and on television, for three decades, it has been Grant Napier. I mean, they've had some other things in Sacramento. They had a UFL franchise. The United Football League was short-lived. The Sacramento Mountain Lions, I believe. They had an American-Canadian Football League team in Sacramento. Grant Napier did broadcasting for both of those teams as well. So, if you are in Sacramento... Grant Napier's voice certainly comes to mind. And what continues to amaze me about this podcast and what has been just super fun now, nearing in on you know our, our, our 75th anniversary week in a couple of weeks, there are a lot of people we've had on this podcast that I know and that I've been familiar with, either that are friends of mine or that I've crossed paths with professionally or happen to be broadcasting the same game as me, so I, I you know, steal some time before or after that game or, or hit him up on the phone thereafter. But there are a handful of people that we've had on this podcast who I've never met before and who don't know me from Adam. And what's been awesome is to speak with those people and see how receptive they are to coming on the podcast, to sharing their knowledge, to giving, first and foremost, me the time Uh, but also all of us the time to hear about their lives, their careers, um, their processes, and their advice about what this industry is like, uh, what this craft is like. Grant had never met me until about 12.15 on Tuesday this week when the Kings were in town. They took on uh, the Indiana Pacers on Tuesday night, and I had shot Grant an email and said, hey, like, here's what I do. This is the podcast. Here's a link to it. Would would you, would you like to be on? And uh, went downtown. Went to the team hotel. Sat down with Grant, and uh, and and we we knocked out this podcast. And and it was a lot of fun. And uh, I am forever thankful uh, for all of the people on this podcast that have been giving of their time in such a manner. And particularly this week of Grant. By the way, I walked into the hotel in downtown Indianapolis this week and there's like a, a first off there were ropes set up outside and there was a line of people seeking autographs they were waiting for sacramento kings players like they were waiting for vince carter to come out on his way to lunch for for autographs and so, like i i almost thought about just walking up to them and, and trying to sign like you like reach for the pen and see what would happen um but but i just i thought better of it went inside but it it, <laughs> it amazes me um and, and I was the biggest of autograph hounds when I was a kid growing up. It was a huge hobby of mine, but it, it, it amazes me um, 
that I mean it was it was noon on a Tuesday and there was a a line you know twenty some odd people deep outside the hotel downtown Indianapolis waiting for uh, waiting for the Kings. To, uh, to come on out of their hotel. Anyway, uh, we'll dive into the conversation here with Grant in a second, but I do want to get to the housekeeping notes. As always, off the top, you can find us on Twitter, at PXPCast. Like us, share us, uh, talk about the podcast. If you listen to it, certainly the thing that helps us grow most is your word of mouth. If you guys enjoy the podcast, uh, let people know that you listened to an episode you tuned in. Holler at the people that are on the show and let them know that you enjoyed what you heard as well. Uh, that's happened in the past, and it's always cool for me to see that when the mentions come up and, and people are tweeting at the guest uh, to say, like, hey, this was cool. Um, because it's validating for me as a podcast host to know that you guys are getting something out of it, but then for them as guests to know that you guys are getting stuff out of it as well. So at PXPCast on Twitter, I'm at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Hit me up via email, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. And then if you have some time as well, rates and reviews for the podcast. Rates, that's not a word. Ratings and reviews for the podcast, uh, wholly appreciated as well be it if you're listening on uh, Stitcher or if you're listening on iTunes also. All right, let's dive into it. Grant Napier, 30 years, has been the television voice of the Sacramento Kings, has done a, a ton of other stuff, mentioned it, the, the Canadian football in America, in Sacramento. He did the UFL. Um, he did radio for uh, the Kings for a couple of years in there as well. He's done some work in television sports coming up in his career and also for the last 23 years he is a talk show host in sacramento so not only is he the voice of the team in sacramento the only team in sacramento with all due respect to the river cats he also is the talk show host the opinionated drive time talk show host in sacramento as well so it's kind of an interesting marriage of those jobs and we'll get to that here on the podcast but uh he is a guy that is synonymous with sacramento kings basketball and with sports in the city of sacramento however he's not from there didn't know anybody when he moved out to california uh initially some 30 odd years ago um and then became the voice of the Kings. He, he has steadily moved from one coast to the other. Uh, went to college at Bowling Green in the Mid-American Conference. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, did some work on television in Ohio and in Illinois. And he is from New York. In particular, he's from Long Island. And as a Billy Joel fan, I have always wanted to start an interview off with one of two phrases. One of which, from a town known as Wheeling, West Virginia. And the second one is this. This is how we start play-by-play cast with Grant Napier. For starters, I've always wanted to begin any kind of interview this way because I'm an an enormous Billy Joel fan. So from a town known as Oyster Bay, Long Island, uh, Grant Napier, welcome to play-by-play cast. Wow, that is a pretty amazing introduction. Do you know that there is a restaurant in the town that I grew up in called Syosset? And there was a restaurant called Cristiano's. And when Billy Joel was just starting out, Billy Joel would walk into Cristiano's. It was an Italian restaurant, and they had a piano. And Billy Joel, I kid you not, would start playing the piano, and word would spread throughout the small town of Syosset. And then all of a sudden, the place would be packed. So that was when Billy was just starting out. How about that? Can you imagine being the thing? Like, I feel like stories 20 years down the road. Like, remember the time where we used to go listen to Billy Joel play for free at the, at the restaurant? Like, that, that's got to be sort of nuts. Uh, is that a... 
is that a thing? Like, what's the calling card of people from that area? Well, you know, one other footnote to that. I believe someone had told me that that's the song Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. That was one of Billy's songs. You know, here's the reality. We're, we all have our nuances from where we're from. We all have special things that we remember, you know, like... The craziest thing for me is John McEnroe lived five minutes from me, and we're the exact same age, and I didn't know it. You know, I knew John was from New York, but I didn't realize he lived five minutes from me. And then later in life, about 20 years ago, I had actually a chance to play in a quote-unquote celebrity match. It was me and John McEnroe against Andre Agassi and someone else in front of 15,000 people at Arco Arena in Sacramento. And I'm like... And I, and I talked to John. I go, I know this is crazy, but I'm from Sioux City. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm from Cold Spring. I, I go, I know. I didn't know. But, and, you know, so, like, you know, it's just amazing sometimes when you look back and you go, wow, how the hell did that happen, you know? How'd that tennis match go? You know what? I was so nervous. And I'll tell you what. The, the, I, I was working for a TV station in Sacramento then, Channel 31. And I played tennis quite a bit. And I still have a, a picture of me and John McEnroe at the net, you know, with our hand, you know, like getting ready to volley. But I felt so bad because the sports director for the NBC station was playing with Andre Agassi. And in the very first game of the first set, he ruptured his Achilles. And then the ball kid ended up taking his place. And he was a really good player. But the one thing I remember is I had a really good forehand. And Andre Agassi was serving to me. And, you know, he was probably serving 50% of his capacity. And I hit a forehand screamer that I had hit literally. I will never forget this. He actually ran... And barely got his racket on it and got the ball over. But then John was able to smash it. Well, the rest of the set, when, when Andre served to me, I never saw the ball. Because he was like, okay, hot shot. Really? Okay, you know, we're playing for fun here. Here we go. And, like, I barely got my racket on the rest of his serves. I was like, you're playing for fun. I'm playing for real because I need to tell people what I just did to Andre Agassi. <laughs> you know what? It was one of the most, uh, you know, like, in this business, when you do stuff, like, you're, you just, I look back on some of the most amazing things that I've done. Like, I was on the infield when the Dodgers beat the A's when Oral Hershiser had that great run. And I had a, I was covering that World Series and I was on the infield celebrating. And I'm not a Dodgers fan, but I went to college with Oral Hershiser at Bowling Green. And when they asked Oral, Where are you going now? He goes, you know, he said, I'm going to Disneyland or Disney World. And I was literally five feet away from him. You know, like stuff like that, you would never think in a million years you would ever be in a situation like that. I mean, I have a lot of great stories like that. But the playing tennis with John McEnroe and Andre Agassi, and this is when they were both in their prime, yeah. was pretty spectacular. I was going to ask you about Bowling Green. I was going to move west a little bit. But my question first was I, when I saw you went to BG and I saw the timing of it, I was like, I wonder if he was there with Oral. Um, and our pitching coach, or our head coach, rather, at Ball State at that time is now our associate athletic director. So when we play Bowling Green, he's told me stories of Oral Hershiser, And he said he used to put golf clubs behind the outfield wall. And in practice, he would disappear and then come back at the end. And it was like he was never gone. Uh, what was a collegiate Oral Hershiser like? Uh, well, my, I was uh, in a fraternity house at Bowling Green, and I played lacrosse. And my roommate for the first two years was uh, a pitcher on the baseball team named Ed Stacy. And so Oral was in a fraternity house literally right across the way, so he would be over a lot. I didn't know Oral very well, but he and Roger McDowell were on the same pitching staff at Bowling Green. So I, because of my roommate, Ed, I used to go out and watch their games when I could, but I didn't get a chance to see a lot of the games because baseball and lacrosse are the same season. But... Um, he was a he was a great pitcher at Bowling Green, and he was a studious guy. A studious guy. He always had his backpack with him. Uh, he was a great student, and you know, I mean, I talked to him a little bit. I wasn't like best friends, but but it's just amazing that you go to Bowling Green, 
and you had Oral Hershiser, and you had Roger McDowell, and then the hockey team, which I was fortunate enough to do a lot of the hockey games on radio, half the team went on and played in the National Hockey League. So it was, it was a great time to be at Bowling Green. I didn't even know Bowling Green ever had lacrosse because they don't yeah. need more. No. Um, how does one wind up as a New York kid when you get a pitch to come play lacrosse in the Midwest at that point in time? What were you thinking? You know what? That is a fabulous question because I was a standout lacrosse player on Long Island, and I was recruited by a lot of the big schools that play lacrosse. I was recruited by Syracuse. I was recruited by some of the schools in the Baltimore area, like Towson State and UMBC. And I, on a whim, got a, I I can't even remember, I think it was a letter from Bowling Green asking me to come out for a visit. And I did some, you know, some homework on it. And I'm like, I'll go out there. And when I went out there, I had the best weekend that I've ever had in my life. And Bowling Green, I'm a huge hockey fan. Bowling Green was playing Ohio State in hockey. And so we went to that. They put me up at a fraternity house with a lot of the lacrosse players. You know, I'm a senior in high school. I'm in a fraternity house for the weekend. Are you kidding me? You know what I mean? Like, that kind of sold me. And then it had what I, what I wanted with my radio and TV. They had a really good journalism school. And they were recruiting. They were Division One, and they were building their program up. And that year, all of the recruits were either from Long Island or Baltimore. And we, we played a great schedule. Um, it, we played, it, you know what, it was, it was great. And here's the other thing. When you went back then, you know, I'm talking about 1977, I graduated from high school. There was no pro lacrosse. So you're thinking, okay, I'm going to play lacrosse for four more years. Do I want to go to a school like Syracuse or Towson State and not play for the first two or three years and then maybe play my senior year? Or do I want to go to an upstart program like Bowling Green? We play a lot of the schools that are powerhouses and play for four. You know what I mean? It was that type of decision. And then it really was, it, it was, you know what, like when you visit somewhere and you go, it just felt perfect to me. And it really ended up being the best move I ever made in my life. I'm sure it was different then than it was now, too. But we always talk to student-athletes nowadays. We'll get football players that will come up to me like, hey, Joel, I want to get into broadcasting. How do I do it? Uh, and we have several guys that are in the broadcasting program at Ball State as well, and they, and they make it work. Um, but it, it's always one of those things where I take a step back and, and I, I'm thinking, how do you do it? Because you're playing, you're practicing, and you're supposed to, if you're doing the broadcasting side of things, cover what you're actually doing. Uh, how did you do it back then to make being a Division One athlete and being a broadcast student coexist? You know what? It, that's, a, that's a great question. I was blessed, first of all, to start broadcasting when I was in second grade. I would just do mock play-by-play on the school ground. And I grew up on, on Long Island, and Marv Albert was the voice of the Rangers and Knicks. And, like, in junior high school, I would record all the games and cut the highlights and then play them the next day in homeroom for all my buddies. So I was kind of a, a wacko that way. And when I got to Bowling Green... What, what did you record and cut them on? We, I had a little tiny white cassette player. And when I mean cut, what I, it had a counter on it. So, like, if the Rangers scored four goals the night before, I knew that the first goal was at 42. Then I would... Then the next goal, I'd write it down. It was 98 on the counter. You know, because that's... that. You know, when I mean cut it, I don't mean it like, you know, actually... You're a second grader splicing the film together, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was... So, like, if they were playing... If the Knicks were playing, like, I would, you know, take some of the great highlights and I would go, okay, well, it starts at 32 on the counter, or, you know... And so I had, the, I had the craziest. I had a little white cassette recorder that I would take in the homeroom. 
And me and my buddies, every morning, you know, we would get together and we, we just, because Marv Albert was so great at doing the Knicks and the Rangers, so I know that's kind of crazy, but that's what I did. But, I mean, even in junior high school, for instance, when we had a school assembly, it, when the school assembly ran early, you know, you had to wait in the, in the auditorium until the bell rang. Well, they would start chanting, Grant, Grant, Grant. And I would have to get up on stage and I would have to start doing a Knicks or a Rangers game with commercials. And I would do it until the bell rang. So sometimes it would be five minutes, sometimes it would be eight minutes. And I would do, you know, a Knicks-Lakers game back when, you know, Frazier and Barnett and DeBusher and Willie Reed, Willis Reed and Bill Bradley and, you know, playing the Lakers with Jerry West and, you know, Wilt Chamberlain. And, I mean, it was unbelievable. And I would, I would add commercials. Like, I would memorize commercials. You know, to this day, I still remember some of the commercials, you know, like, you know, it was brought to you by Eastern Airlines, the wings of man and the second largest passenger carrier in the free world. You know, Eastern Airlines isn't even in business anymore. I still know the slogan, you know, and by Ford, what America needs a better idea. Ford puts it on wheels, you know, like like I it was crazy. But so I used to like that. So when I got to college, I had already done so much play by play and I walked right into the campus station and I was blessed. I started doing division one football at an early at, you know, and I uh, lacrosse. We started practicing in like January. So I still did some hockey games and uh, but I couldn't do a ton of the hockey games. But I, you just make it work, you know? You make it work. And back then, fortunately, it wasn't like it is today. You know, you practice for two or three hours, and then you don't practice. You know, you didn't have meetings. You didn't have around-the-clock stuff. So for that, it wasn't that hard. It really wasn't. They got a new arena a couple of years ago. And before that, uh, I know Anderson was kind of like the, the dregs of the Mac in 2014. Uh, what was it like, though, back when you were in college? Well, I got to tell you, speaking of Ball State, to this day, you know, one of my fondest memories of covering that conference was, you know, Ray McCallum. And Ray McCallum, to this day, and it was great because his son ended up playing for the Sacramento Kings, and I got to meet him. And then I got to meet Ray. And I said, I went up to him, I said, I got to tell you, I went to Bowling Green when you were at Ball State, and I go, I still remember you to this day. You were one of the greatest shooters I've ever seen. And it kind of like, he's like, really? I go, oh, yeah, really. You were killed us every time we played. You know what? It, uh, it, it was great. Um, I mean, they, they, uh, Central Michigan had, it was Central or East, I think it was Central Michigan had this, uh, another great shooter that was... Sugar McLaughlin? Yeah, it was, it, yes, yes. There you go. You see, you took the words right out of my mouth. And um, I'm very impressed. And so, you know, you remember players like that, but everything was new back then, and it was great. I love traveling, even to this day, traveling is my passion. And I love going to see all the different universities and all the different campuses, and that was a real joy for me, a real thrill for me. So you graduate from BG. Um, what is Ms. Lou Television? Ms. Lou Television was ESPN before ESPN became where it is. Ms. Lou Sports Network televised a lot of the college bowl games back then. And uh, my dad's mixed doubles tennis partner, Vic Piano, owned the Mislu Television Network. And he had always said, hey, if there's anything I can ever, ever do for Grant, let me know. And that's really how I ever got on TV. I had never been on TV before. My first time ever on TV, I did the halftime show of the California Bowl between Bowling Green and Fresno State. And it was one of the weirdest, the most amazing couple of hours I've ever had in my life because um, I called the executive producer, his name was Bill Schwing, and I said, uh, Mr. Schwing, my name's Grant Napier, and Vic Piano asked me to call you, and he goes, yeah, what can I do for you? And I said, well, Bowling Green's in the California Bowl, blah, 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 blah. So to make a long story short, he said, well, we're having a production meeting in Fresno at this hotel on Friday night. 
So I show up at the production meeting. We're sitting at a long conference table. There's probably 10 people in there. And Vic, I mean, uh, Bill goes, uh, so, excuse me, what are you, what are you, who are you and what are you again? I said, I'm Grant Napier. I called you. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, what do you want to do? He goes, you know, um, there's really not a lot to do. I do need someone to do the halftime, but I just can't put you on TV if I've never seen you before. I said, oh, I completely understand. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come to the stadium three hours before the game, and I'm going to give you an audition. And if you're good enough, I'll let you do the halftime. And if you're not, I said, I completely understand. I would never want to put you in a position where, you know, if I'm not good enough, you're doing something because of Mr. Piano. In the back of your head, though, you're probably thinking, like, I got this, right? I, I knew I had it yeah. because I've been practicing my whole life for this moment. Like, I used to sit in my TV, in my in my bedroom and, and ad-lib things and make believe I was on TV. So... In the back of my head was I, I knew I had it, but I was very nervous. But I got to the stadium. They had a lot of technical problems. I never got an audition. And so I'm in the TV booth, and I kid you not, I'm, in, I'm dressed up and got my suit on. And there's probably eight, seven, six minutes left in the first half. And I turn to the stage manager. I go, can you ask Bill at the next commercial if I'm going to be doing the halftime or not? Because I really need to prepare something. She gets back to me with three minutes left to go in half, and she goes, Bill said, yeah. She said, you're going to interview the commissioner of the conference, and you're going to do some stats and highlights. I'm like, okay. So here comes my first time on TV. You know, I've been in a classroom setting on TV, but never live TV. And I did it. And at the end of the game, I'm walking out of the stadium, and I'm walking by the TV truck, and Bill Schwing comes out of the TV truck, and he goes, Grant! He goes, oh, my God, you have no idea how freaking nervous we all were in that truck when you came on. But you did a great job, and good luck in your career, and blah, blah, blah. So I get back to Bowling Green a couple months later. The sports director at the ABC station in Toledo, his name's Jim Tishy, And I had known Jim from covering all the Bowling Green. And to, he comes up to me, and he goes, I didn't know you did TV. And I said, I didn't know I did TV either. <laughs> and he said, well, I've got six weeks vacation this summer, and our weekend guy is filling in for me. We need someone to do the weekends. Would you be interested in doing an audition? And I said, absolutely. And I remember because it was my birthday. I went up to the TV station on my birthday in June. Never been in a TV station before. And the news director goes, um, write a couple scripts and we'll go into the studio. So I wrote a couple of scripts. And I went into the studio. And the weirdest thing was the teleprompter. We had to run ourselves with a foot pedal, kind of <laughs> like an old sewing machine. And that was the hardest part for me. But anyway, I did it, and the news director goes, uh, would you like to do that again? And I said, well, you only get a chance to do it once when you're doing it for real, right? And I said, no, I'm good. And anyway, I got a phone call about a week later, and they hired me to fill in for $5 an hour. But I was living in New York at the time. And so they would call me on a Thursday. I would get in my car and drive 10 hours, do five minutes of sports on a Saturday, five minutes of sports on a Sunday, and then I would drive home again. The Mislu thing, um, what are you thinking with three minutes left to go when they say, all right, you're going to do this? And obviously, you know, you, you said in the back of your mind you're prepared for it, but are you going to interview the commissioner of the MAC? What am I going to ask the guy? You're like, Where do we go with this? How much thinking on your feet did you do in, you know, 180 seconds? Uh, it was a whirlwind. I was, at that time, I was extremely nervous. And the great news, the uh, commissioner back then was Jim Lessig, and I knew Jim. And I had talked to Jim a number of times. And so it was a, it was, if I could have interviewed anyone at all, he was perfect because he knew me and I knew him. 
And I think he also understood the position that I was in. And I remember him, I asked him only like three questions, but I remember him saying Grant in his response a couple of times, which gave me, it's always nice when that when you're doing an interview in that setting and someone uses your name, it kind of validates you. Uh, and then I only did, there were, I think I did two or three highlights and then they put a full screen graphic up of the, the stats, which was easy for me. So, you know, when Joel, when you're going through that, you're not, it, it's a blur. It go, it went so fast and you know, when you do something well or not, like I didn't stumble, I didn't make any mistakes, but you also look at your yourself differently than maybe others do. So, uh, but after the game, when I got that validation from uh, Bill Schwing, that, that was pretty neat. But I, it's really I can't really go back in time and tell you what was going through my mind in those final three minutes, other than don't mess this up, don't mess this up, don't mess this up, and that's really what was going through my mind. It's a perfect combination of events too, because it's the right team, it's the right interview subject, and all of those things. That I mean, they put you with a team that you didn't know and a guy you didn't know, then maybe it turns out differently um i don't want to we, we can go through the in, entire course of your career but i want to fast forward if i can to now you're the voice of the sacramento kings on television uh, but you have an interesting role as well and that you do a talk show in town and i'm always curious about that dynamic uh and if, if you google your name it all comes up yep. with the, the history with demarcus cousins etc uh how do you have both of those jobs where one of them is you're very opinionated and on the other side a lot of people look at the play-by-play guy and they want you to be in the family. And, you know, when you're in the family, you don't say certain types of things. How do you walk that line of being able to do those two things? It's the hardest thing that I have, that I continue to do and that I have done. And I don't think that a lot of people understand how truly difficult it is because I'm, I am that brash New Yorker who's opinionated because that's the only way I know. When I go on the radio, I'm just like a fan with my, with my friends. And when you're with your friends and you're talking sports, you have a lot of disagreements and you it, it, it's a lot of banter back and forth. The, the, you know, the dynamic that I have, as you just pointed out, is I know every single thing that's going on with the Sacramento Kings. It would be like, you know, you know your family better than I do. I don't know your family. Fans think they know the family but they really don't know the family like it would be the equivalent of if you and I lived on the same block and I said well yeah I I I I think I know you pretty well but I have no idea what's going on inside your house and just like you would have no idea what's going on inside my house and so I know everything that's going on inside the Sacramento Kings house I also know how management thinks and how they feel about things and I'm not going to lie to you if I disagree 180 degrees from what the franchise is doing, I'm probably not going to say it that way. I'm probably going to phrase it where I leave it open-ended. Like, I'll put it out there like, hey, you know, the Kings are doing this. Do you all agree with that? Because it seems a little bit odd. But I won't come out and say, boy, what, what they're doing is wrong. It's terrible. Blah, 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 blah. The DeMarcus Cousins situation... Every single employee of the Sacramento Kings, I'm talking about management and coaches, were fed up with him. I knew that. Okay, I'm talking about the, the, the Paul Westfall. I'm talking about Keith Smart. I'm talking about the general manager. I'm talking about a lot of the decision makers were absolutely to a point where they 
felt exactly how I felt, but they couldn't say anything. So I, I, I had no problem saying it on the air. Now, and then the only person you're alienating is Boogie. So you correct. feel okay. Yes, it's a great point. And they didn't, the Kings, it's really weird because a lot of fans think, well, the Kings call me up and tell me what to say. The Kings have never, ever called me up with, with one exception, and I'll tell you that in a minute. And so, yeah, I, you're right. DeMarcus didn't like what I was saying. But as one of the Kings executives later in DeMarcus's career said to DeMarcus when he complained about me, he told DeMarcus, he goes, well, why don't you prove Grant wrong? Why don't you go out and prove all the people that are criticizing you all the time? Well, he works for the Kings. And, and, and he was told, well, he's not saying anything that a lot of other people aren't saying. Why don't you go out and try to prove everyone wrong instead of complaining all the time? That's what the response was. So I had the, I had the support of the management. Like, okay, you know what? Yeah, maybe he is being very critical of you, but why don't you shut him up? Why don't you go out and prove him wrong, which he never did. So you, your questions are phenomenal because of this. A lot of people don't understand that dynamic. It is really, really, really hard. I'm not lying to you. It's really hard. I travel with the team. I see these guys every day. And I've been fortunate enough. This is my 30th year of doing the Kings. It's my 23rd year of doing my radio show. And I've only had a problem in 20 three years of doing my radio show, I've only had a problem with two players. One is DeMarcus and the other is Chris Webber. Both are unbelievably sensitive to criticism. As a matter of fact, they can't handle criticism. And whenever anyone criticizes them, they strike back. They don't know any other way than to be venomous. And in DeMarcus's case, he was a bully to members of the media. Members of the media that were critical to him, he would try to bully them. We, uh, he wasn't going to bully me. And I tried to talk to him, and I said, hey, you know, um, we, we, we were able to have a couple of civil conversations. But at the end of the day, I am not going to go on the air and lie. I'm not going to go and fake things. I'm not going to manufacture. I was pretty much telling everyone what I think they already knew. I think the majority of fans in Sacramento knew that this was never going to work and that this guy was just kind of not able to control himself. How do you still have conversations and get information from them because at the end of the day, all right, the radio is one one job, but on the other side, you've still got to be able to to tell his story on the basketball side and to get him to want to talk to you, let alone trust you and give you anything that's usable. Um, how'd you do that? Well, first of all, at the end of the last year, he didn't talk to me and he didn't he, he wouldn't talk to me and that was fine because I was just to a point where, hey, I was trying to be the, I was, you know, the, here's the bottom line in this business. You, no matter what you do, you always have to be professional. You know, you can't make it personal. I didn't make it personal with him. It may have sounded like that, but I really didn't. And at the end of at the end of the day, if you don't make it personal and you believe in your heart that you're being fair, then then that's good because you you know in this business, the only thing you really come into this business with that you you earn over the years is credibility. And once you lose your credibility, it's really difficult to get it back in this business. So I always tried to be fair if I ever what I maybe crossed the line I have no problem going on the air and apologizing if I feel that I crossed the line I have no problem going on there and going hey you know what I was wrong I uh, but but I haven't had to do that very often where I've had to apologize because I crossed the line going in a personal nature um you know DeMarcus is who he is um you know here's here's what I would also say DeMarcus should be grateful that 75% of the bad stuff I never have said on the air. No, seriously. You know, like what fans hear is like just, it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. 
uh, because my my rule is, hey, if I'm on the bus or the airplane and I see some, that never leaves my body because I'm not. That that's a privilege. So. You know, my reporting on DeMarcus was based on what I could have seen and would have seen had I just been a normal member of the media. You know, you have to be real careful in this business because you will then not have any trust of anybody. What goes on behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. Yeah, how do you get people to understand that as well? And it's, I'm sure it's easier at this point in your career, but let's go back to the beginning. Yeah. You, you've been doing the Kings for seven years. Now you've got a radio show. Uh, how do you get guys to... Or maybe even currently, if a new guy comes in and they don't know who you are, um, to have that trust and understand, like, can I say this? He's sitting right over there. Trust is built up over time with certain players, and it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a period of time. Um, Sacramento's a very unique town because we only have the Kings. We don't have anything else. We don't even have big-time college football. We don't have big-time college basketball. It's the Kings. It's the Kings. It's the Kings. And it's the Kings 12 months out of the year. And so a lot of the players, even though they may tell you they don't, they all listen to the radio. And if they don't listen to the radio now in this day and age of social media, they hear everything. Players that say they don't hear stuff and don't listen, they do. They all do. They all talk about it. And so uh, a lot of the players, you know, now most of the players that come in know me because of league pass and everything. But... They, they talk to people. They'll go, hey, is Grant trustworthy? They'll talk to the, the trainer who we've had for 25 years. Hey, what's the deal with Grant? They'll talk to whomever. Hey, what's the deal with Grant? Or they'll ask one of the coaches, hey, is Grant cool? What's the deal with him, man? He seems kind of mean on the radio or whatever. You know, they ask. Sure. And then after, uh, like Rudy Gay. You know, I had a phenomenal relationship with Rudy. And I trusted Rudy and he trusted me. But the players that confide in me and tell me stuff, they know they I will never in a million years ever go on the air and say, oh, well, so-and-so told me. Sure. They, they, but that's a bond, and, a, and an, it, it, it happens over time. And I also think when a player comes in and they say, well, this announcer, he's been with the team now for 30 years, or if it was five years ago, well, he must be doing something right. How could he maintain his job? Sure. And how could he be on the radio for over 20 years if... He wasn't this or, you know, so that, that helps. I think it's the respect factor. Have you ever gotten into a sticky situation or have you ever had a spot where you've said, all right, hey, Grant, tread carefully with this one because I know certain things. I don't want to say certain things and, and had to toe that line a little bit carefully. The only the only delicate balancing act, and it was every day for a period of time was when the Maloofs owned the Kings. And I had a phenomenal, phenomenal relationship with the Maloofs. Phenomenal. But at the end, and this was, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but the Kings were moving, then they were staying. Then they were moving, then they were staying. Well, when it got to the very end, when it looked like that they were moving to Seattle, we found out we were playing in New Orleans on Martin Luther King Day. And I was in the lobby for a day game, and I got a call, my phone rings, and it's George Maloof. And George goes, hey, Grant, I'm just letting you know we have a deal with Seattle. We're moving the team. I want to thank you for everything you've done. You've been great, blah, blah, blah. And it was a one-way conversation. I was so I, – I was numb. I was absolutely numb. And I said, George, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Well, the next day I had my radio show because that day we didn't have a show because we were playing New Orleans and then we flew home. And from that day forward, I went on the radio and my entire mantra was, you know what? If I lose my job, I lose my job. I'm going on the radio and I'm going to help save this team. I don't care if I don't ever do another NBA game. I have to do what's right. And what's right is to figure out a way to keep this team here in Sacramento. And the Maloofs were, were not 
they, they, at that, from that point forward, they were never in Sacramento, so I didn't have to see them. But I was on the radio every day campaigning to keep the Kings and that we're not going to let them go to Seattle. And it was every day for four hours. And it was, there were so many twists and turns. The Kings are not going to stay. They're going to stay. David Stern, Kevin Johnson. I mean, it's a shame because ESPN did a 30 for 30 on it, which never aired. And it's really a shame because it was such a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, documentary. I went to New York to see it at the Tribeca Film Festival. They had a big premiere out in Sacramento and then the KJ stuff from 20 years ago with his alleged sexual misconduct surfaced and ESPN pulled it. And it's, it's such a shame because it was a great, great piece. But we were playing in L.A. at the end of the year and Gavin Maloof was at the game. And I hadn't seen Gavin since January. Had not seen him. And I went over to Gavin Maloof and I go, Gavin, how are you? And he goes, Grant, I'm really disappointed in you. And I said, why are you disappointed in me, Gavin? And he said, you know, he goes, I thought you were, I thought you were, he said something like, I thought you were real loyal to us, or I thought, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know what, Gavin? I said, I've never once said anything on the radio that undermined your family. I said, I never once was critical of you, Joe, George, or your mom. And I said, everything that I've done on the radio is to try to save the team. And I looked him right in the eye and I said, and if anyone tells you differently, then they're lying. And he said, he shook my hand. He goes, I appreciate that. And I said, I looked him right in the eye. I said, hey, Gavin, everything I just told you was the truth. I said, I've never once said a bad word about your family. I said, but you know what, Gavin? I'm trying to save the team. And I go, you need to respect that. And that was the, and then it was really amazing because after the sale on May 15th, I still have it. I have a. I still have the voicemail that Gavin left me on my phone, thanking me for everything and how great I was and blah blah blah. And so, um, but that was a really difficult time for me. Like I can't even tell you how hard that was going through that entire period of time because the Maloofs are still paying me to be the TV announcer of the Kings, and I'm on the radio every day, basically trying to stop their sale to Seattle. It's an interesting conflict of interest. Oh, well. uh, and <laughs> if, if people only knew the inner workings of what goes on behind the scenes. You know what? Honestly, I, I can't even share with you, I wish I could, or in others, what some of the phone calls I had during, even before that January day with, like, Joe Maloof was more fiery than Gavin and George. Joe would, Joe would get very upset at times. And sometimes Joe would just call me and start screaming on his phone and, like, screaming at me. And I'm like, Joe, Joe, Joe. And he'd stop talking. I go, Joe, I can't get on the radio and say that. <laughs> he goes, I know, I know, I know. I'm just upset. I, oh, I, I know. You know, I go, okay, Joe, it's all good. You know what I mean? Like, these were some of the conversations I had uh, because it was a very tenuous relationship between the Maloofs and the mayor. Like, really bad. And so Joe would want me to get on the air and say things about the mayor. I'm like, Joe, come on. Stop it, Joe. I can't say that. You know what I mean? Um, so it was that period of time was I, it's really difficult for me to put in words what it was like. It was the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. But we all got through it. We have a, an amazing, beautiful, I mean, like beautiful, beautiful arena in downtown. The surrounding areas being built up. We have a lot of exciting young players. I mean, like I almost feel like. It was the worst storm you could possibly be in for, from a sports vernacular, you know. I mean, you, you couldn't go through a worse storm than we went through, and we survived. Because, you know, most cities that go through these type of storms, they don't survive. They lose their teams. 
and they're left with, wow, we want our team back. Look at Seattle. They're still wanting their Sonics back, right? I mean, look at how devastating it was for the city of Cleveland when the Browns left, and it took them a couple of years. Maybe the Browns wish they still didn't have their team. But Maybe Cleveland wishes, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, my point is when 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 uh, franchises move, it's it's devastating uh, for a lot of fans. So I mean, I'm dealing with it in Northern California. The Raiders getting ready to go to Vegas. Yeah. You know, so it's not easy for fans. It really isn't. I want to talk um, some broadcasting side yeah. of things too, and the, the physical nature of what you do also. Uh, so broadly speaking, what makes good basketball television, in your opinion? I think you have to have a really good analyst. I think if you're a good play-by-play man and you don't have a good analyst, I think you're going to have a bad telecast. I think on TV, the analyst is really the, the, the most important aspect. That's my opinion. Uh, Marv Albert once told me when I was really uh, young, a good TV announcer is judged more by what he doesn't say than what he does say. So, you know, to me, the most important part of announcing a game is you have to hit home runs on the big, big moments in a game. Like... I'm remembered, and any announcer is remembered for how do they call the big moment. You know, whether it's Joe Buck calling a home run or his dad, Jack Buck, you know, with the, I mean, I mean the Kirk Gibson home run or what, I mean, you know, those type of moments are what people define you by. And so I, to answer your question, a good telecast, I think you need to let the game breathe a little bit. I think you have to have a degree of humor. I work with Jerry Reynolds, so I find it be hilarious. Uh, especially when you're working for a bad team. And um, I think inflection in your voice is unbelievably important. I think, you know, you have to speak with the speed of the game, which is why, believe it or not, hockey is my favorite sport to do because I think it's the most challenging. Uh, But a good telecast, let it breathe, but I really believe the analyst is so critical I mean, look at look. Watch NFL football. You know, do you judge the games more on what the analyst says or the play-by-play guy? Mm-hmm. I mean, look at how much. Look at what CBS did with Tony Romo. All right. I mean, you know, Jim Nance is really good, but they made a bold move to bring in an analyst to drive the the, the game. Or, you know, I can go on and talk about. You know, Al Michaels is great, but you know, Chris Collinsworth. You you know, do you do, do you know? When you watch Monday Night Football the next day, are you talking about Sean McDonough or are you talking about John Gruden? You're talking about John Gruden. So I think the analyst is is vital to have a really good telecast. How much of that can fall on you to say, you know, an analyst being good is one thing, but how much of your job is to make them good and how do you best make somebody good? It's a great question. I'm the driver. I'm the captain of the ship. And I steer the ship in what direction it needs to go. So that means uh, I have to lead my analyst into a direction that I think is important based on the flow of the game. If I feel that my analyst is not picking up on something, I have to lead him down that road. Uh, The play-by-play guy does drive, is the captain of the ship. There's no question about that. And I have been blessed with Jerry uh, because, like, in big moments, he doesn't speak over me. There's nothing worse, and this is a real cardinal sin on radio. And there, are, you can listen to any NFL game, or and you hear analysts stepping over their play-by-play, and you really don't even know what's going on. I mean, when you're listening to a game on radio, you're listening to it so you can find out what is going on, and the play-by-play man is the main guy. 
and they are your eyes and your ears. And there is nothing more aggravating when there's a touchdown, a big play, and you really can't tell what's going on because the color analyst is blurbing out stuff in excitement because they can't shut up. I had a guy like that when I did radio. I did radio for the Kings for three years in the middle of my TV tenure. I won't even tell you what, what that. But I worked with a guy who's now the radio play-by-play voice of the Portland Trailblazers. His name is Brian Wheeler. And Wheels is great. Dear friend of mine. But Wheels one year did games with me as an analyst uh, for home games, not road games. And he would get so excited that after a while, when there was a big play, I would reach over and turn his microphone off while I was doing the game. I would reach over and I'd hit the off button. And I said, Wheels, I got to do it. You can't control yourself. He goes, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I go, well, I'm just going to keep on turning your mic off on the big moments, like at the end of games. And, and um, so... But on TV, you you do drive the you do drive the the ship. You are the the man that has to get you in and out. You got to get to breaks on time. All of those things. Let me go to the Marv quote. Um, what don't you say when it comes to being known for what you don't say versus what you do say? Uh, what's important to you to, to you know? I I'd sent a tape to Ian last year, uh-huh. and the one thing, and I had had a litany of people tell me, hey, lay out more, lay out more, lay out more, <clears throat> and Ian gets back to me and goes you got to call the game, man. Like, you still have to actually call the game. So where is that balance to you? Well, you're, first of all, blessed that you got feedback from Ian because he's another dear friend of mine, and he's the best. I used to listen to Ian Eagle first starting out on WFAN Radio in New York at 1 in the morning doing the 2020 sports updates. I'm not kidding you. But um, he is right. You do still have to call the game. I think what I'm referring to a couple of times is when you're at home compared to on the road, when there's a big moment at home, it doesn't do any good in talking over the crowd because you can't really, you're just cluttering. So when I do a game at home and there's a big moment, like after two seconds, I lay out and let the crowd take over, especially on a game-winning shot. If it's on the road, then I don't. Um, some of my best calls that I've ever had are on the road at the end of games where there's been an incredible comeback or a crucial shot because the crowd is dead. And then at that point, but so I think home and on the road does factor into it. I also think that what, what I mean by, um, you know, like when a, when a player is bringing the ball up the court, I don't really need to describe that on TV. You can see that. Um, and there are times during a game where there really isn't anything to say for either the, 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 the TV play-by-play man or the analyst. And, you know, sometimes the sound, the natural sound of the ball and everything else is okay. And the, So that, that's what I meant by that. I think more is what Ian's saying is you do have to call the game. And who better, I mean, gosh, he's doing the Thursday Night Football Package. He's doing TNT. He's doing the, the, the CBS. I mean, he does both radio and TV. And, and I know he would tell you they're completely different mediums. They're night and day. Um, but on TV, for big moments, and I think it's different at a football stadium than it would be at a, in an enclosed arena. But I think you do have to lay out at home because the crowd is so loud you can't really speak over them. It's just the regular flow of action, though. I mean, if we're second quarter, you know, two minutes in, will you just sit back? Will you take a possession? I don't want to say take a possession off, but take a possession where you're just going to, all right, let's let this play out. If they miss a shot, they miss a shot. I still won't say anything. We'll just, we will let it breathe that much. Or is that all kind of your, your belief system of, of what your extremes are in, in, in letting the crowd come through? I probably don't let a play go uncalled, but I'll go on a 24 second clock. I'll go 10 seconds easily without saying something easily. Um, you know, if a team's in a half-court set and they're just throwing the ball from side to side, I won't say a word. 
you know, I, I, I won't say anything. And Jerry won't really either. And I guess that would be my definition of, of not doing anything over that period. So, yeah, I guess, I guess the best thing to say is if there's nothing going on, what is there to say? Okay? In other words, what am I going to say to the viewer at home that's going to be interesting enough where, like, what am I going to say if there's nothing going on? Unless there's a trend that I can ask Jerry about where we can actually talk about the trend while the, the play is going on. Sure. You know, I'd rather say nothing at all than say something for the sake of saying it. How do you, and this is one of the things I really enjoy asking NBA team guys as well versus a guy that does a national network broadcast because that whatever they do, it's a different game every time. You're doing the same team, at least one of them, 82 times. And a lot of times on quick turnaround where you don't have a ton of time to plan a game out. You know, if you're doing a week, game of the week, you, know, you, got, you got plenty of time to think about it. For you, though, how do you do not just a basketball game on television, but this basketball game on television and make everything different uh, and make today's game different from Sunday's game um, in terms of storylines, but also in terms of, you know, you will, I'm sure, have people that will watch all 82 games that you do. And if you say something and repeat it, they will know you've repeated it. But you've also got to, in Game 7, oh, maybe somebody's watching that hasn't seen Game 1 when we told this story about a guy. Uh, so how do you kind of bring those things back around as well and, and craft each individual story? Well, first of all, if tonight's game is like Sunday's game, we were down by 30-plus points at half, I may just get up and leave and let, let someone else do the game at half. Okay, so, so don't scare me like that, okay? Because I just, I just announced uh, one of the worst games in the history of basketball, i got to tell you. So let's, you, know, you just scared me there. It's a, it's a good question. I, I think, um, first of all, every game, even though I do 82 games, they all have... They're all so different, and you never know what's going to happen. Like, I'll give you an example. I did the game two years ago, the Kings and the Warriors, where Clay Thompson scored 37 points in the third quarter, you know? And so we show up for a late-season game, and we think, okay, the Kings are going to get blown out, and it's gonna, we're going to have to have all of our film material and, you know, get through four quarters because the Warriors are going to dominate. And then I'm sitting there, and I'm witnessing, and I'm calling – the greatest quarter in the history of the NBA. And I've also had games where I've called games where a player has had the worst game in the history of the NBA shooting. And I, I, it's it was 25 years ago. And so it, in a roundabout way, here's how I'm going to answer that. Every single game is different. Every single game has its own identity and things happen even in a game where you think two bad teams are playing. It's like going to a baseball game on a Wednesday afternoon getaway day between two bad teams and someone throws a no-hitter or a perfect game. And you're like, wow, I, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. But you didn't expect that when you go. So each game develops its own personality as the game goes on. And maybe somebody that has been really playing, has really played poorly, all of a sudden starts playing great. And so you focus more on that. Like, I, I, we have a player on the Kings, his name's Buddy Heald, and he's probably the best shooter on the team, but he's been shooting the ball very poorly all year. And so we talk about that. Well, maybe in the next game I do, he breaks out and, you know, has 30 points. We'll, we'll, we'll shift a little bit into what's the difference. What, what's he doing differently, or is it just a matter of him making shots? So, 
you look for the nuances of the game that way. And that's where you say driving the ship, I'll bring Jerry Reynolds in. You know, the Kings in their last game, for instance, they were down by 40 and they were, they, 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 they were as bad as you can be. But yet the game before that, they scored 70 points in the first half. The Kings had 30, I think they had 32 points at the half in the game that, you know, the last game. What's the difference? And so, you know, that's the same team playing 72 hours apart, but the results are night and day different. I love getting into those. You know, what, what, Jerry, what, what do you see differently? What's going on? Why are the Kings efficient tonight offensively when the last game they were horrible? Is it just shooting, Jerry, or do you see something different? I'm looking for different angles of why this is happening as opposed to maybe somebody taking a routine 15-foot jumper. How do you stretch that out uh, beyond just the one question and 20 seconds of airtime? Well, the great thing about television is if you happen to miss a basket, it's not the end of the world because you can see it as long as it's not, you know, a crucial part of the game. You don't ever want to be talking over a crucial part of the game except for what's going on. But if it's in the middle of the second quarter and we're talking about something and, you know, we miss a a guy making a 15-foot jumper, it's not the end of the world. So... That's the beauty of television. You can see what's going on. Uh, and because the basketball now is such a fast-paced game, it's up and down, it's up and down. There are going to be times when you're going to, because the analyst is talking, you're going to miss a basket or whatever. But that's not the end of the world on TV. So, you know, you just try to keep in mind, if I was watching the game, what would I want to hear and what would I not want to hear? And... Sometimes you got to be careful. You don't get off the track. Like, I was very critical of Chris Weber last week. He did a, the, the game in Sacramento on TNT, and I thought he was horrible. I thought he was awful, and I said so on Twitter. He was horrible. And I did a radio show the next day, and I really thought that we were going to have four hours of how bad the Kings were in the second half. It was nothing but four hours of Chris Weber calls. I, no, really, I'm not exaggerating. I had four hours of fans calling in, complaining about how bad Chris Weber was. Because he, he, he wasn't even, like, staying with the game. He got carried away, in my opinion, and it was like it became almost impossible to listen to. So you got to keep the train on the tracks. You really do. And there are times when you get it, when you deviate, you got to get that train back on the tracks because ultimately your job is to announce that game. The people at home are watching the game because they want to see that game. They want to focus in on that game. And you have to, you have to really keep that in mind. But... The other day, when you're down by 35 points in the third quarter, you got to have a little levity in the broadcast, too. You know, I know i got to let you get going here because you've got a, a game to prep for, but before I do, I, I wanted to ask you stylistically as well uh, how you developed who you are, and uh, you talked about letting the, the, the New Yorker kind of pervade what you do a little bit, but, you know, you get into... You don't want to be cliche, but you've got the catchphrases. You've got, you know, if you don't like that, you don't like NBA basketball, that type of stuff. How did you formulate all of that to become who you are, um, but not be too over the top and not be just Joe Bland and kind of find that middle ground? Phenomenal questions. You're asking me the best questions of anyone that's ever interviewed me, just so you know. And I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here. You ask phenomenal questions. I always tell people that are getting into the business, you have to be yourself. Don't try to be Joe Buck. Don't try to be Jim Nance. Don't try to be Ian Eagle. Don't try to be Marv Albert. Don't try to be Kevin Harlan. You have to develop your own personality. What I did as a kid, and I was so blessed to go to Bowling Green because at night you could hear Joe Buck do or Jack Buck do the Cardinals. You could hear Ernie Harwell do the Tigers. You could hear, you know, the great announcers that did the Indians back then. Same thing with basketball. And so what I used to do 
is I used to listen to all kinds of different announcers and take little bits and pieces of what I liked about that announcer, more about nuances than anything. I'll give you an example. 20 years ago, I'm watching a Pistons game, maybe 15 years ago. So I'd already been doing NBA basketball for 10 or 15 years. And George Baja is the longtime voice of the Pistons. And I heard him describe a three as a left corner three. Or, and I was like, I had never said that before. Now, I'm not copying him, but I think the most important thing when you get into this business, and especially on radio, you have to be able to describe a player bringing the ball up the court 10 different ways because you can't announce it the same every time or else it's going to be boring. Someone taking a shot from the top of the key, you have to be able to announce that 10 different ways when you're on radio. On TV, it's not as much. My catchphrases, honestly, just came out. Like, my first one was put it in the book and send them to the line on a player that's fouled and makes the basket. Well, when I was growing up and I used to help out in high school, we would keep, you know, the scoring books. And I would do that for the high school games. And so it's always in the book. You, someone makes a basket, you write it down in the book. You know, it was a scoring book. And just one, one day I was doing that and it just caught on. Like, I got good feedback. Wow, that was really cool. And then um, I can't even remember when, if you don't like that, you don't like NBA basketball. But it started a long time. And I'll tell you a real quick story on that. You, you don't realize, like, I grew up listening to Marv Albert. And Marv was like a god to me. And I got a chance to meet Marv when I was in eighth grade. And he was really helpful to me in my career. And Marv had some amazing catchphrases like, you know, yes, and it counts, you know, but that's Marv, okay? Well, my son is um, a sophomore down at San Diego. He goes to college, and he got down there last year, and he said, Dad, you're not going to believe this. He goes, I met some friends. They're from down here, and they were asking me what my father did. And I said, he is the TV announcer for the Sacramento Kings. And they're like, no way. If you don't like that, you don't like NBA basketball. Like, these are kids that don't even, you know, and I'm just like, wow. You know, like, you, you, you don't, it's like, it, it's, and then last year, uh, NBA was running a, a, one of their promos for NBA League Pass and everything, and at the end of the thing, they got my saying, and I'm sitting at home, and I'm just like, you know, it's surreal. You know what I mean? Like, you don't really, I, I'm just telling you, it is like, you sit, I'm just a normal guy. I'm just, and you see that, and you hear that, and you're like, it's just kind of like, it doesn't really resonate that that's like my voice they're using for an NBA promo. Like, I'm just some kid that grew up announcing games. It's just, but then to hear my son say that, and, you know, I have kids come up to me all the time now in Sacramento in, at games, you know, hey, can you say if you don't like, you know, it's just, it caught on. You know, it's, I've been very blessed that way. What qualifies as a moment that, that earns that moniker? Like, do, do you have a level in your head? Okay, I can drop it here. It's, it's very instinctive. It's unbelievably spontaneous. It's just special. You know, it's not something that happens every game. I'll, I, like, I haven't even said it once this year because we haven't had one of those moments in the early part of the season. No, I'm serious. Um, you never know. I try never to use it more.